Ladies, thank you so very much. Marcia, you have made my day. I was invited to sing in the choir. Thank you. I'm kind of like that old country song. Please let me sing in the choir, in the choir. Please let me sing in the choir. I thought one day I will in heaven, but you made it possible today. So thank you for that. And Lillian, thank you for your message. Appreciate you and George. So, uh, On our screen and in your uh, bulletin, you have this handout. This is going to be on your refrigerator today. Okay, I want you to put it on your refrigerator because Thursday, May 2nd, is the National Day of Prayer. And when we look around, whether you watch CNN or Fox News or get your news source training, our world is in a mess. Our world is in a mess. And yes, it's that critical that we need to seek the Lord's face. We need to uh, come together for a time of prayer. We're going to have the sanctuary open on on, uh, uh, Thursday from 7 to 1. And then they'll take a little break. And then from 3 to 7, maybe if you're picking up the kids from school, swing by. Uh, But we're going to have a time in here to pray. And as I use our um, invitation to the worship, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, that's a a conditional. He says, if, and we we are going to do that. We're going to join voices around the nation. And our theme this year is love one another. And so, please, make it a part of your day, just to swing by. We're going to join the saints across the nation, praying for our nation. It's that important, so please take the time to do that. Last week, um, Royce did a wonderful job speaking from 1 Corinthians 15 on, on the case for the resurrection. I just love that passage. It's so packed. But today we're going to do something a little different. We're going to make the historical case for uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And... Looking back, I think of the day we're living in, and we were talking about um, times in our history, in our Sunday school class, looking back at the Civil War, and it was a mess. We had North versus South, and there was hatred and, and, and war, bloodshed. It was a terrible, terrible time in our nation's history. And you might remember Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, the great American poet, but he had written a hymn um, we have it in our hymnal, and it's called I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. It's one of my favorite Christmas carols because it has an air of honesty to it. And it says, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play of peace on earth, goodwill towards man. And then he pauses, he makes a transition. He says, but in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. Boy, that's, that, that hits you right in the gut, doesn't it? Because it's, it's honest. It's brutally honest. And um, he says, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to man. But notice how God comforts him in this. He says, the pe- then peal the bells um, more loud and deep. Um, God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail. Peace on earth, goodwill to man. What lifted Wadsworth, uh, Longfellow, out of that funk, out of that depression, was the reminder that God is not dead. He does not sleep. He is in control. And the resurrection, looking at the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, God in Christ is not dead. He doth not sleep. And it was a great encouragement. But like Longfellow, our world is hurting too. And we need to be reminded that Christ is not dead. He's on his throne. So looking at this case for the historical um, uh, case for the resurrection, um, when we make this 
case for the resurrection, uh, it's uh, an extremely effective approach in witnessing to atheists and our mosaics and our millennials. Those are the ones, the young people born from 1984 on. Many of you have children, grandchildren in this category, okay? And um, whether we like it or not, they're leaving the church in droves, and they need to be engaged. We need to pray for the younger people to be drawn to Christ. And this is an, ex- an extremely effective case. So I'm going to share this with you and, and so that in discussions at home or with uh, co-workers or friends or neighbors that you'll learn to employ these. And it's a different approach as we look at this. Um, we're going to compare it with others. We're going to look at other alternative explanations for the empty tomb and the resurrection story. And so we're going to look at the historical case in the scriptures. Now, in doing this, we're going to uh, treat the New Testament solely as a historical document. We know it's much more than that, but we'll just uh, concede and say, let's just treat it as a historical document. And then we're going to engage the discussion there. And then the question that we bring up is, do we have uh, historical evidence for trusting the New Testament reports? and the events as they actually happened? And the answer is yes, we do. I want to introduce you to this man. This is uh, Sir William uh, Ramsey. He was an archaeologist and New Testament scholar, but he was he's an expert in archaeology. He later became an expert in New Testament uh, studies. But um, his area of expertise was in Asia Minor, Turkey. And the reason I tell you this is that he... he lived from 1851 to uh, 1939, but he went to Turkey as an atheist. He left Scotland, he went as an atheist, and he was going to go to Asia Minor, and he was going to prove that the New Testament was inaccurate and false, and that the the gospel writers had no clue that they 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 were sloppy at best. But what happened when he was there, the discoveries that Ramsey had made were just so impressive, he comes away from it, turning to the Savior, being saved. And he has this said, he says, Luke is a historian of first rank. The author should be placed among, along with the very greatest historians. He, this and other of the gospel writers, we have a very accurate portrayal of historical facts. Now, the Bible is not a book of history, but when it talks about history, it's very reliable. And so we're just going to assume that it's a book of history, and when we engage others, we'll use that as a basis. So, But we have confidence in it, and that's what I want you to realize, is what the Bible says about its history is very reliable. Luke tells us things that we never knew when he wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Certain rulers, I don't know if you get lost in some of the the tetrarch here and the governor here and all these different titles. Luke nails it. And that's what Ramsey discovered, and he was blown away by Luke's accuracy. Now, the main argument that we make in this is that, uh, in the resurrection claim, that God miraculously raised Jesus from the dead. And we're going to say that that is the best explanation for four important core historical facts that we're going to all agree on. Both saint and sinner agree on this, the saint and skeptic agree on these. Let's look at these facts. The first fact is this. Jesus died by crucifixion and was buried in a known tomb. Okay, that's most people will recognize that. That is a true statement historically. Fact number two, Jesus' tomb was found empty by a group of his women followers. 
Okay, nobody has a hard time with that. Um, fact number three, Jesus' disciples believed that he rose from the dead and appeared to them. These are called post-mortem, after death, appearances. Most, like I said, saint and skeptic will say that they believe that. Now, they might give different reasons for it, but they believe that. So they'll concede to that fact. And also, fact number four, key Jewish figures who were once hostile and skeptical were converted to believe in Jesus. And these are James, the half-brother of Jesus, and Saul. We're going to look at that. Now, looking at history, we've got to be fair and objective about it. How do historians uh, determine the historicity or the historical accuracy or authenticity of reports in antiquity? Do they have a set of criteria that they use to say this is reliable, this is unreliable? Well, they do. And let's just look at some of those. And we use the criteria of um, authenticity. Now, when you have multiple independent reports, that's a good thing. When an event or saying is attested by more than one independent source, then that's a solid identification of historicity or it's reliable. Um, the more independent sources you have, the greater the likelihood that that actually happened. So multiple independent reports. How about enemy reports? Um, if a saying is uh, attested to by someone that's unsympathetic or even openly hostile to your position, it is very likely to be historical. Okay. How about embarrassing details? Uh, an event is more likely to be historical if the event or saying is attested to by a source that includes embarrassing details about the event. It lends a, a degree of honesty and credibility to it. So that's, it's, it, they're not trying to make legend. And that's sometimes a danger. Um, how about eyewitness testimony? If you have multiple, consistent, corroborating, first-hand eyewitness reports, that's powerful. If Jonathan was here as an attorney, he would say that's the best you can have. And early sources. Um, the closer the time gap from when the event happens to when the report is given, um, if it's narrower, it's much more likely to be historical. There's not a lot of time to develop for legend to be created. Now, so this first fact, Jesus died by crucifixion, was buried in a known tomb. And I underline the word died because we're going to need that in just a minute. Now, in Galatians 4.4, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. We often use that passage at Christmas time, talking about the virgin birth and how God at the right time just sent his son. Well, he did, but he was also uh, creating a situation for the human drama of our redemption to play out. And we see that God does that. Now, what we, he does that is through uh, the Roman Empire, the raising up of the Roman Empire. That whole area around the Mediterranean Sea controlled by the Romans becomes very important because what we see is this concept called Pax Romana, or the Roman peace, Roman justice. It's swift, it's brutal, it's demonstrative, it's very um, a deterrent force. And so that becomes important. The Romans did not mess around. Um, in their execution squads, they were experienced warriors. They used maximum excruciating pain. That word excruciating comes from ex, out of, cruciating, 
the cross, out of the cross. That's where that word comes from, was the pain in, from the cross. That's where we get excruciating from. But their job was to inflict pain, and they were very efficient. Ultimately, they were the ultimate death squad. They would prolong death, uh, the torture as long as can, and then they would execute. So it was against their uh, uh, authority to... Make, they had to make sure that the convict was dead. And so they were very experienced. They, they knew when, the, when uh, the criminal was dead. Now, he's buried in a known tomb. And Jesus was buried in a tomb that's um, owned by Joseph of Arimathea. Now, he was a wealthy uh, Jew. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is basically the Jewish Supreme Court, the lawyers in in Judaism. They were the, that group of uh, the Sanhedrin. They were very powerful and they were very wealthy. And uh, he was a member of this. And because of his prominence... Um, we know precisely where this grave is in the accounts that, that people in Jerusalem knew where Joseph of Arimathea's grave was. He had a garden there. It was very near the execution site. But they know that um, in, in the time. Now, we're not as certain today where that spot is, whether it's the garden tomb or the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. But in that day, Joseph was well-known, and they knew where this tomb was. Now, there are some embarrassing details about this when we look at Joseph of Arimathea's grave. And as a member of the Sanhedrin, he was part of that opposition, even though he was a secret believer. Um, Here you have um, Joseph of Arimathea bestowing on Jesus probably the greatest honor of burying him. And uh, it is he's not in the circle of the disciples. And so the question comes up, where are the disciples? And um, we realize that the disciples... Uh, abandoned Jesus. They have deserted him. And that's another uh, uh, embarrassing detail. Where were the disciples but cowering with fear? Who was at the cross? Who was at the cross? Where were the disciples at the cross? There was only one disciple at the cross. It was John and the three Marys. Mary, the mother of Jesus, uh, Mary Magdalene, and Mary, wife of Cleopas. Those were the women at the cross. Where were the disciples? That's an embarrassing detail, but it's it, it's a true detail. And we're going to see how this plays out later on. But it's factual. It's not trying to sugarcoat the account. And it gives a degree of historicity there. It validates it. Now, we have multiple and independent reports. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, which Royce did a beautiful job with that. He laid out the case. That's an independent report. All four Gospels attest to the death by crucifixion and burial in the tomb. Um, and then we also have a non-Christian uh, sources. Tacitus was a Roman historian. Lucian of Samosota was a Syrian historian. And Josephus, the Jewish historian, all uh, give evidence that Jesus was crucified and buried in a tomb. And so we see when Pilate, upon hearing accused by men of highest standing among us, had condemned him to be crucified. This is a secular author saying that Jesus died and was buried. So we know that these are factual uh, and we support that through the accounts in the scriptures. Jesus died by cross- crucifixion and was buried in a known tomb. How about this one? Jesus' tomb was found empty by a group of his women followers. Now, it has multiple independent reports. Uh, we Again, 1 Corinthians 15, again, powerful passage. And Peter, in Mark 16, goes to discover it. And in Acts 2, he does his Pentecost sermon. And he uses this as a main point in the sermon, that Jesus was 
the tomb was empty and he had rose again from the dead. Um, the accounts are early. Uh, Paul, uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, as Royce had shared last week, I want to read this to you because this becomes an early, early source of uh, fact in the church. And Royce said, this is, he said, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So he had received this instruction, this saying, from when he went up to Jerusalem, when he was uh, saved on the uh, Damascus Road. And so this is an oral tradition dating to 33, 34 A.D., early, early on in the uh, church. And then Mark writing the account, he wrote in the mid-50s. So if, if Jesus died, uh, 33 A.D. is what we're uh, accurate on, um, this is within uh, 17 to 20 years of the actual event. And in ancient history, that's fantastic. That's extremely close to the actual event. Now the empty tomb, enemy reports. You know, if you remember what the Jews said about the empty tomb, they said um, the Jewish attack was about the resurrection was that the disciples stole the body. Okay, well, great. This verifies that the tomb was empty, even though... They attribute it to the disciples, and there is an empty tomb. And that's going to play later when we look at the other theories. How about the Jerusalem factor? This is not a, a, a backwater little village. This is capital city of Jerusalem. And the earliest proclamations of the gospel started in Jerusalem. Jesus said, you're going to be my disciples from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. But it started in Jerusalem. If they were preaching the resurrection in Jerusalem, people who had questions, they can go look for the tomb. But there was an empty tomb. If the tomb was still occupied, they'd have troubles with their message. Some embarrassing details here. Women had a very low status in Jewish life. The testimony of the women in first century Judaism, um, their testimony was not counted as much. And that just points out it is unlikely that the story of the discovery of the empty tomb by the women is fabricated because they put that embarrassing detail. It's true, that's what happened, and you don't have to cover it up. But if I was making up a story, I would have had the men discovering it because that would have had more authority, wouldn't it? But that's what happened. And so that gives it a ring of authenticity and truth there. So we know that Jesus' tomb was found empty and by a group of his women followers. How about this one? Fact number three. Jesus' disciples believed that he rose bodily from the dead and appeared to them. Okay. Jesus appears to many individuals from the day of resurrection to the day of ascension is 40 days. And over that 40 days, he meets many individuals. He meets Peter. He talks to Peter. He talks to James. Mary Magdalene, and the Apostle Paul. Jesus appears to a large group of, uh, uh, large and small groups of people. Uh, the two disciple on the, on, disciples on the road to Emmaus, Cleopas and his traveling companion, Mary Magdalene and Mary, mother, uh, Mary the mother of James, and then um, all the apostles in the upper room, and then, um, 
at one time more than 500. This is the one that just blows me away. At one time, he appears to over 500 people, the resurrected Christ. Many of these were probably at Calvary seeing the execution of Jesus. And he appears to these. Could you imagine the impact that has? That they saw him crucified. They know the brutality of the Roman crucifixion. And they see him risen. Now they have multiple independent accounts here. Paul, again in 1 Corinthians 15, that's why it's so important. Luke covers it in Luke chapter 24. And John chapter 20 talks about this. And they're early. As we talked about the pre-Pauline um, saying that was going around. Last week, Roy said, he is risen. And what do you say? Wonderful. And that was an early Christian greeting in the church. So as a result, uh, the, this was common knowledge among the believers. They firmly believed that. And this was a pre-oral tradition, pre-Pauline oral tradition. Before Paul started writing his letters, this was being said in the community. So we also see that um, there's embarrassing details here. Um, we talked about the women. That, that's an embarrassing detail. But even the disciples, Thomas, they said, we've seen the Lord. And uh, he says, unless I put my finger in his wounds or in his side, I won't believe. And even to all the disciples, Jesus said, why do doubts arise within you? He was changing their thinking. But he, this, these are embarrassing details. They doubted even after they saw him that he was in fact resurrected. Thomas wouldn't believe until he saw. And again, that's an embarrassing detail that's revealed. So we see that Jesus' disciples believe that he rose bodily from the grave and appeared to them. Here's the fourth one. Key Jewish figures who were once hostile to Jesus were converted to belief in Jesus. The conversion of James has multiple uh, independent reports. Um, James is the half-brother of Jesus. We were talking about today James and John. James and John were the uh, brothers, the twins, sons of Zebedee. They were part of the disciples. James is another James who is not a disciple, but he's the half-brother. He's the uh, child of Joseph and Mary, and he's the half-brother of Jesus since Jesus' father was God. Um, the gospel reports tell us that his brothers were unbelievers. Jesus' brothers were unbelievers. And in Mark 3.21, they wanted to get Jesus out of a social situation because he was he had lost his senses. In other words, he's crazy. They thought he was crazy. That's what their view of Jesus was. And Jesus appears to James personally in 1 Corinthians 15.7. But we read in Acts one fourteen that they become some of his earliest followers. It talks about Mary and Jesus' brothers in the upper room. Jesus became a leader. Uh, James became a leader in the early church. We talk about James, um, who was the brother of uh, John. He was martyred. This is another James who becomes the head of the Jerusalem church. And we see that in, in, when Paul writes Galatians. 
And then there's extra biblical um, recordings of James's suffering and martyrdom. Josephus, the Jewish historian, documents it, as well as Clement of Alexandria, who was a he was a uh, uh, early church father. Now, how about Saul of Tarsus? This occurs uh, later, uh, 34 A.D. and on. But the conversions uh, have early and multiple uh, reports. The early oral tradition about Paul's conversion circulated among the churches, and they feared him, and he was going after him. Um, Paul's own testimony to his conversion in 1 Corinthians 15, 9 and 10 that we read last week, but also in Acts, he, he talked about this. Luke records Paul's conversion in Acts 9. And then the extra-biblical writings outside the biblical sources um, from Clement of Rome, um, Polycarp, Tertullian, and or Origen. These are early church fathers. They communicated to uh, the church that Paul was, in fact, converted and was the man he was. So we see that key Jewish figures were once hostile um, but were converted to Jesus. Now, we do all of that to set up the to juxtapose it to what's out there. What are the other theories that are going on about this resurrection empty tomb problem that they have? And the question that you have to ask when when I present these, does the explanation that I'm going to present to you, does it answer the four core uh, facts of the resurrection story? We're going to compare the two. So here's one, the conspiracy explanation. This says that the body of Jesus was stolen, okay, in fact, that's the complaint that the Jews had brought out to uh, the uh, to the authorities. They, they were going to blame the disciples for doing. And the question I have to ask is, where were the disciples when Jesus was in the grave? They were hiding. They were fearful. They were cowardice. It doesn't hold um, sway to what they do. What happens to the disciples later in their lives? But they're martyred. If they had stolen the body and perpetuated a lie like that, do you think they would have gone to their death? And it would have been contrary to the moral teachings of their founder, Jesus, who said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Speak honestly. And so they would not have perpetuated a lie. So this theory doesn't hold a lot of water. The wrong tomb explanation, the body of Jesus, was misplaced. And we talked about um, uh, being in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, a very prominent political, social figure in Jerusalem. They knew exactly where they were. And if the Jews were concerned about it being in the wrong tomb, don't you think they would have wanted to find the body to present anyway? Let's look for it somewhere. But that wasn't the case. They said someone stolen. It wasn't a wrong tomb explanation in that first century. This is the one that really gets me, the resuscitation explanation. It's called the swoon theory, that Jesus is flogged and he's beaten and he's uh, tortured, and then he carries his cross through the streets of Jerusalem and is nailed to the cross and he's hanging there losing blood, and he appears to be dead. They take the body down, they put him in the tomb, the cool rock of the grave revives him. That's that's what this theory says. Now, the one thing, and why we talked about the Roman power that they had, they were experts at putting people to death. 
So this explanation doesn't hold water. And could you imagine if you were one of the disciples and you're hiding up there in the upper room and this beaten, um, blood-worn uh, soul comes up and he's got nails, uh, holes in his hands and uh, nail holes in his feet and he comes knocking to the door and you go to the door and... He says, I'm the Savior. You go, my goodness, you're, you're beaten up. You need a doctor. You know, how would you believe in one like that? And so again, this one doesn't hold much water either. And here's the last one, hallucination explanation, saying that these post-mortem um, uh, appearances were strictly hallucination or visions. Well, I've had bad tacos before, and maybe you, know, you get a little dizzy from them. But uh, not to the extent that you're going to hallucinate. And I, I just think of the 500 people that saw Jesus. I don't know what they were serving at that fellowship that night, but it, it didn't make them all hallucinate. And when people hallucinate, they don't all hallucinate about the same thing. So this is another crazy story. So, But these are the things that are out there. And so what you want to do is take the historical facts in the scriptures that are very reliable and challenge people with these things. And that's what we're able to engage and discuss. Come let us reason. Together saith the Lord. And we can discuss these things. Now here's the conclusion of the matter. The resurrection claims that God miraculously raised Jesus from the dead. Is the best explanation for the four historical facts of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. These other ones fall short. They don't address it. Okay, so they stole the body. Um, what explains the conversion of Saul of Tarsus? What com- explains the uh, explanation of the conversion of James? It doesn't. But look at this on the bottom of your handout. The resurrection also explains this. Look at the Jewish people. Why, despite long-standing Jewish observance of honoring Saturday as a day of devotion, did the earliest Christians begin to meet on Sunday, the first day of the week? What caused that change of these Jewish Christians? This was a major shift in their thinking, but to honor the resurrection day. How about this? The earliest followers of Jesus were Jewish Christians, and they were devoutly monotheistic. And... Monotheistic means one God. And they begin worshiping Jesus as God. What explains that? Well, Jesus proved to be God. He was part of this triune Godhead that they were able to worship him as God. How about this? Why were the newfound observances of uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper? Why was that a part of the early church? Except that The master, the Lord Jesus, commanded it. It's called the ordinance. It's ordered by him for us to follow. That became the practice in the early church. The disciples' abrupt change. We talked about this, about from being timid and fearful to being bold and confident and willing to uh, suffer and die for the truth of the resurrection. They were convinced And sometimes we don't share our faith because we're not truly convinced. And that's what this is to encourage you and to be convinced of. Spend time with us and to be fully convinced that he's risen from the dead. And the phenomenal growth of the early church. What explains that except for the fact 
that Jesus rose from the grave. He appears to over 500 people, and we just see this church exploding from Jerusalem. People are convinced they've seen the risen Savior in spite of intense persecution, in spite of uh, being hounded down by the Romans uh, and persecuted. It's going to occur for the next 300 years that they will be um, persecuted. But the church flourishes because it's built on truth. Bringing it to you, what about you? Do you have the confident assurance um, that you have the forgiveness of sins? Do you have the confident assurance that one day we'll be with the Lord Jesus in heaven forever? We have eternal life now, and we're going to have it forever. Well, you can. Jesus, because of the resurrection of Jesus, Christ is not dead, nor doth he sleep. He does not sleep. He has conquered sin and death. Praise God. Let's close. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that we can look at your word and that we can uh, discuss it and to understand it and we thank you that it's so reliable and historically verifiable that these events happened as you said they did. We thank you for this. Help us to be willing to engage others that we know, that uh, whether they're our kids or grandkids or co-workers, neighbors, that we would engage them in these serious matters and find out where they are spiritually. Help us to use this as a tool to understand their hearts. Help us not to argue, um, be argumentative, but to make the case for Christianity, to engage them in love and in respect. Thank you for the fellowship of the saints this morning, the encouragement that we had in you in being with one another and for your spirit being with us. We want to give you first place, Father, and we thank you for this. In Christ's name, amen. I'm going to come down and this is just a, a time of if if anyone would like to come and pray about anything, I'm always available. And if there's a decision you'd like to make, any decision at all or any request for prayer that you have, I'm here as we sing our, our song of invitation. That's close. Uh, Wednesday night, we'll have prayer in the uh, fellowship hall. Please be a part of that. Uh, we, we're we in a bad situation in our country. And we are in a, a tough situation in our church. We've formed the pastor search committee. Those folks are going to need our prayer. We're going to have to commit to that. And so there's many needs that we have. Be a part of that. And then on Thursday, let's pray for our nation. Let's be a part of that. Because we have answers. You and I have answers for this nation, for this lost and dying world. Let us be willing to offer and share in the cross of Christ. Let's dismiss. Father, we thank you for your love, your kindness, your mercy that is extended to us. And we pray that we would be your ambassadors to a lost and dying world that would have um, the hope of the, of the empty tomb, of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, that this would uh, in, be in our thinking constantly that the, the, the grave holds no sway over us. There's no sting of death. We thank you for this and that we can uh, have peace with you through the resurrected Christ. Thank you for the gathering this morning. In Christ's name I pray, amen.